Well, good morning again. It's so good to see all of you joining us in our Christchurch Sanctuary this morning. And I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. My name is Rick Lyman. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christchurch. And I get the privilege of sharing together with you in God's living and active and powerful word. The teachings of Scripture tell us that prayer is a powerful thing. In fact, in James chapter 5, It says Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three years and then after three years he prayed and it rained again. Somebody out here is a powerful prayer, a person who's praying because you're keeping winter going way too long. I know you missed the white Christmas. I think somebody's praying for a white Easter. Would you compromise and settle for a white April Fool's Day maybe, like in a couple days? In any case, our Lenten sermon series, if you've been joining us or maybe you're here for the first time, is entitled, No Wonder They Crucified Him. Now, why in the world would somebody think about crucifying someone like Jesus? He was wildly popular in his ministry. Every place he went, people came to hear him, and the buzz just continued to spread. We've never heard anybody speak like this. We've never seen someone with the power like this. Jesus' miracles of both healing people, touching them in their most painful moments, and providing even food for people on several occasions, and actually turning water into wine. Jesus was loved, it seems to me, by so many people. His compassion and his love for people is evident to everybody. But Jesus also said some really hard sayings that hit people right between the eyes and spoke directly to the heart of their selfishness and their sinfulness in a way that no one else had really ever been able to do. And so that made people of his day step back and just say things like, who does he think he is? Changing everything we've done? Changing the way we look at the scriptures? Telling us what we can and can't do? Who does he think he is? Our friends, our scripture passage for today comes right out of the first sermon Jesus gave in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, those chapters which we call the Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. The fact of the matter is, it's the most powerful communication that's ever been crafted on earth. You know why? Because it was God himself on earth speaking directly to his people. Now, I had a few hours to prepare this sermon Think how long God had to prepare the Sermon on the Mount. Eternity passed. He had plenty of time. But chose to give us powerful, life-changing words in this brief sermon. And I encourage you during our Lenten series and beyond that time, if you'd like to do that, I'd encourage you at least once a week, read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's profoundly powerful for your life. If you need a particular shot in the arm spiritually right now, you're feeling kind of lackluster or weak spiritually, then I'm going to give you a spiritual prescription. I encourage you to read it once a day for 14 days. The way you take an antibiotic for 14 days, and I guarantee you, your life will be changed forever. Your relationships with everybody around you will be improved. Your marriages, your friendships, your other relationships, your prayer life will be deepened. Your heart of generosity will be strengthened and you will be stronger because of it. You don't have to take my word for it. The very last couple verses in the Sermon on the Mount are guaranteed by Jesus that those that read these words in that sermon and put them into practice will be a wise builder and grow strong in their spiritual life. The passage we're looking at here today comes out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. I'm going to encourage you to stand with me as I read aloud from this scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a prayer? At this moment, I'd like us to just ask the Holy Spirit who encouraged and spoke these words through Jesus on that mount that day to speak to our hearts and our minds this very day. Illuminate our understanding, but also to work in our hearts so that we can live into what Jesus is really trying to speak to us here today. I'd like to invite you to pray for me as well as I deliver this message that I'll be able to deliver it in a way that both benefits you and also brings glory to God. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, it says. It goes past the outer things. It goes deep within our beings to transform us, strengthen us, and heal us. May it be so, God. May your word be living and active in our inner being this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, when I read these words of Jesus saying, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, it reminds me of an account I read some years back of a wealthy person that was looking to hire a new chauffeur to drive him around. So he brought the three final candidates to his beautiful mansion, and he took them outside, and he told all of them, he said, see that mountain over there and that cliff and that dangerous road up there that goes along that cliff? Ask them, how close to the edge of that cliff would you drive? First person jumped up immediately, well, I would drive within six inches of that cliff with no problem at all. Second one said, well, I'd get you a foot away from it and you'd have nothing to worry about. The third candidate said, I would stay at least six to ten feet away from that edge so that nothing bad would happen. Guess which one got the job? The third one, of course. Well, Jesus seems to be saying to his disciples and to us, don't even get close to the edge of that cliff. Stay away from sexual sin. If you're tempted in any way to let down your guard, do whatever is necessary to escape. But somehow, all of us, including myself, have a way to ignore warnings like this, don't we? When there's something we want or want to do that conflicts with something that we're warned not to do, we kind of lose sight of the warning and we go after what we want because we become engrossed in what we're focused upon. Well, I'm one of those, too. When I was 13 years old, I developed a hernia, an abdominal hernia, reducible rupture, they were called, that I never told anybody about. You know why? Because I knew from my younger brother's experience who had a hernia that I would have to have a surgery, and that would be done in summer my favorite season of the year, and I would miss the entire baseball season. They did that to my younger brother. Of course, they wouldn't take us out of school and miss school, which we'd like to miss. We have to miss the summer to have the surgery. So I kept it a secret. Well, you know, in those days, hernia surgeries are a little more complicated than they are today. It was a three-hour, three-day hospital stay, and then six long weeks of recovery would have wiped out an entire summary. At first, the hernia didn't bother me that much. You know, I just 
managed around that, and for six years I managed to not have a problem with this. But early on, I had this thing going. I thought I better look something up. So I found this thing called an encyclopedia, a medical encyclopedia. Remember books this size that cover a whole shelf? Now we just go on the WebMD and look stuff up. I searched through this and I found out these kind of hernias can be pretty okay. They aren't going to harm you unless they get twisted and strangulated. And then you could die from this kind of hernia. I thought about that and thought, oh, that's not going to bother me. I just completely forgot about it. Well, in 1976, about six years after I incurred this hernia, suddenly one evening it became very hard and very painful and it was not the same. I'm thinking, huh, well, maybe I'll sleep on this and not, I'll see what happens in the morning. Again, putting it out of my mind. Well, the next morning it hurt even more. It was way more serious and I thought, I better do something about this. I picked up the phone and called the surgeon's office that had done my brother's surgery. I'm 19 years old. I remember the guy's name. The doctor said, get to the hospital right away and I'll meet you there. So I got in my car, drove to the hospital. They had me in emergency surgery in less than two hours and the hernia was repaired and my life was spared. Because you let these things go too long, they can actually take your life. Somebody after the first service came up and knew someone that actually died from exactly this kind of hernia. But you know, I had convinced myself that this hernia was nothing to worry about. All the while, a serious danger was lurking right in my own body. In our passage today, Jesus is warning his hearers and all of us of a serious life-threatening danger of lusting, saying that just looking at the physical form of someone and imagining having sexual relations with that person can get them into deep trouble with God. And he clarifies and actually intensifies the Old Testament prohibition. By the way, there's a thing called the Ten Commandments. You walked in as you came into the sanctuary here this morning and saw on the wall there. They aren't the Ten Suggestions, actually. They're God's commandments. And two of those speak to this very sin. The Seventh Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 says, You shall not commit adultery. And then the very 10th commandment, part of that says to us in verse 17, you shall not covet or look longingly at your neighbor's wife wishing you could have sex with her. Two of the 10 commandments talk about this topic. Think about that. If you're going to sum up something that's really important to you, there's 603 commands in the Old Testament, at least that many, sum it down to 10, you'd be very careful which what were the most important things you put in to put on the tablets you gave to Moses and the sexual sins in there twice. It's a big deal to God. But I want to pause for a minute to say what Jesus is not saying, the literal cutting out of an eye and cutting off of a hand. He's, however, speaking to us to properly use the natural God-created desire for sexual intimacy that he built into us. It's part of our normal human nature. There is nothing sinful at all about having a normal, healthy sex drive. Jesus is not prohibiting that. He wants men and women to fully experience and enjoy sexual ecstasy, in fact. He, in fact, created it. He's not a prude. He put the chemicals in our brains. He put the facilities in our body to have normal sex. But he wants it to be in marriage. What matters is how we manage or control that drive and express it in a way that God intended in the context of a trusting, lifelong mutual commitment with somebody. Now the literal meaning of the Greek word looks at here is not a casual glance. If your eyes wander and look at somebody, 
That's not what it's talking about. What the Greek word here means actually is to deliberately use your eyes to awaken your sexual lust. This is the person who looks in such a way at someone that sexual passion is actually awakened and desire is deliberately stimulated. So observing beauty in all its forms is a good and healthy thing. Looking at a beautiful woman or a handsome man is normal and natural. It's a normal thing to say, that's a beautiful thing. Just the same way as I love sunsets. If any of you are friends of mine on Facebook, you see the pictures I'm always posting of sunsets because I'll sit and stare at them for half an hour or more, seeing the beauty of it. Or as I'm driving down 31st Street to church often, I come this way every day to church and on Sundays as well to see a deer and her fawn just trotting across 31st Street. I slow the car down, I look behind me first and I stop sometimes just to watch the beauty of that. God put all kinds of beautiful things, including the human body, in this world. That's not what Jesus is saying. But obsessing over the body of another married person solely for your own sexual fulfillment is not good. In fact, that's what Jesus calls sinful. So I want to use something. How many of you remember around this crowd something called ringing and running? When you were a kid, did you ever go up to someone's doorbell and ring it, and then you run away and you hide in the bushes and you laugh because the person opens it? A pretty silly stunt, right? Jesus is basically saying if you get attracted to a person, starting a conversation with them, and you start thinking, maybe I could make something happen, and you see this little thing on their finger called a ring. If you see a ring, run. Run away from that relationship because God specifically forbids it. But you know what? Jesus' words seem pretty extreme, don't they? might even seem cruel. How can just looking at a man or a woman and imagining having sex with them be all that bad? It's, it's harmless, isn't it? Jesus, you can't be serious, some might want to say. And cutting off or gouging out your eye seems way too extreme. But actually, he is speaking the most loving thing he could, like a good doctor who identifies an undetected, serious, or potentially fatal disease in someone, like cancer, that's not obvious from the outside. It's an act of love, of care, and concern to warn people of a danger they face that they may not be fully aware of. Love tells the truth to help others and prevent them from suffering pain themselves and causing pain in the lives of others. But you know what? So very many people, I fear, including Christians who know this teaching, blithely ignore it and plumage ahead into very dangerous territory by giving way to lustful thoughts, which inevitably lead to lustful actions in due time. That's what Jesus is trying to warn us about. His stern warning was to prevent the root of a sin of adultery in the heart of believers from spreading and taking over and ruining their lives, their marriages, and their families like a cancer that's unchecked. In medical terms, early detection and treatment is so important to nip many hidden killers in the bud, isn't it? If we can get it when it's stage one, we can cut it out and prevent any further damage from happening. So Jesus' direction on sin, the sin of adultery, it is kind of radical. He does not say, try to reduce how often you fantasize about your married coworker or neighbor. He directs us to cut it off completely at the source to effect a permanent cure. The sin of adultery is serious business to God. So Jesus urges them to gouge out your eye. And by that, I think he means to change the pattern 
of how you longingly look or how you are looking at someone that you might be sexually interested in that's not your spouse? Are you seeing them as an object of personal pleasure instead of as a human being that God had created in his own image? So often the lustful, wanton eyes of a married person catch the eye of a lonely married person longing for someone to love them. And then a connection happens there between two married people. So lust plus lonely longing equals loss for everybody concerned. And if that looking has already led to touching, a physical relationship with a married person, most of which starts with a touch, holding of hands, and embrace, and goes on from there. He says to cut it off immediately, the physical contact and the relationship. So just like a good doctor isn't being mean or cruel or out of touch or insensitive or even prudish when she tells her patient that their badly infected lower leg has to be amputated because it will save your life. She isn't being mean. She's telling someone the truth. That's what Jesus is saying. The sin of adultery is never benign. It's never harmless. It is a killer all the time. To each person and the marriage it infects, we need to cut it all out. How many of you, if you went in for a surgery and they're trying to remove a cancer from your body, would tell the surgeon, don't take it all out, leave some of it in there, you know, just in case. No, the best words you can hear from a surgeon is, we got it all. You don't need chemo, you don't need radiation. The surgery is curative. That's what Jesus is saying. Cut it out from the roots so it can no longer hurt you or harm you or your marriage. The Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Thessalonians, one of the earlier of his writings in chapter 4, where he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should, listen to this, learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, a husband or a wife of somebody else. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Notice that last sentence there and consider it carefully. This is written to the church at Thessalonica. This isn't written to the pagans in that region. It's written to the Christian believers that God would punish those who sin in this way. You know what the word for punish means in Thessalonians? It's the word for being an avenger, somebody that takes the side of an offended party in a dispute to avenge and make it right. My friends, you don't want God on the other side of the equation against you. So Paul is warning us that God will take the side of the innocent partner in these situations. Seems to me, even though the letter was written to a church in Thessalonica back then, and in those days, it was a pagan culture. It was a culture that was filled with all kinds of sexual immorality and divorce was rampant during that time. Seems to me our culture has made its way to that very exact same state and needs to hear this very teaching. That God does care about our sexuality. God does care about the, the institution of marriage because he invented both of them for his purposes. Apostle Paul says it, uh, the writer of the Hebrews, likely the Apostle Paul says it this way, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled 
and again reminds them, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. I believe there's four major reasons that God forbids adultery and specifically describes some kind of punishment for it. Number one, it breaks his own command. I mentioned it before. These aren't the ten suggestions. These are the ten commandments. How many of you who like to argue or your children like to argue with you and they don't agree with you have had to say, well, I, it's because I said so. That's why you can't do that. Ever said that to a child or a grandchild? Well, I just said it. Well, God has the right to actually say that. You shouldn't do this because I said so and in fact, I'm the almighty God. I get to make the rules. Back in the Garden of Eden, what were the rules? Do anything you want. Just don't touch that tree. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? They went and did it. God is saying to us, you can have all the sex you want in a married relationship because that's what I designed it for. Not with someone else's spouse, not with someone outside the marriage. You can have it within that. Those are God's guidelines. Also be reminded, we're being warned by Jesus because adultery in the Old Testament was a capital offense. Anybody caught in the act of adultery, both the man and the woman, were executed at God's command. It's serious business to God. The second reason I think there's this warning in the Sermon on the Mount is because adultery crushes the other spouse or spouse is when there's two married people having an extramarital affair. Now, let me just say this. First of all, there are no flaw sinless people. Everybody, so those of you who are married, those of you who are considering marriage in the room here today or beyond, you're going to find a flawed person and you'll find out about those flaws when you get married. And if you've been married a while, you probably figured out most of your spouse's flaws. And what we're supposed to do when we discover differences of opinion and thought, we're supposed to work it through, confess and apologize when we do things we shouldn't do and forgive each other and go on. Adultery breaks outside the bounds of a covenant relationship and makes it very difficult for the unoffending partner to navigate forward. It crushes them. Thirdly, it damages forever the both families. Children of those marriages, lives are permanently scarred and affected by a parent or both parents in some cases who just feel like fulfilling their sexual desires, doing what feels good to them and not realizing that they're modeling a behavior that their children are observing and may someday do the very same thing in their own marriage. And fourthly, Jesus is being loving when he warns his disciples and us that adulterers who think they're getting away with stuff now think it's in secret. It's no secret to God. God sees everything we do and Jesus specifically warns those who are found in that sin at the end end up in a place called hell. That's the warning he gives to us. In our world today, what the Bible calls sexual sin, the world calls a natural right to self-fulfillment and indulgence. Two totally different perspectives. Author and pastor Scott McKnight says this about this. He says, Jesus teaches control of desire, not suppression of sexuality. This leads to the obvious. We are personally responsible for protecting our eyes to be sexually redeemed. And the proper use of our imagination, which God gave to us, is very essential. John Stott said it this way. He makes this observation. Our vivid imagination is a precious gift from God. Imagination enriches the quality of life, but all God's gifts need to be used responsibly. They can readily be degraded or abused. There are many 
who want to excuse their sexual wantonness and adulterous affairs and regular use of pornographic material saying, well, God made me this way. You know, I can't help myself. I'm oversexed. It's just the way God made me. Or I need a variety in my sex life to keep me satisfied. Well, author Richard Exley clarifies the difference between lust and the normal sex drive that God intended for us. He says it this way so powerfully. Lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. It's not a biological phenomenon or a byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience. Like a glass of water quenches thirst or a good meal satisfies an appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it actually becomes. There is simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy lust's insatiable appetite. When we deny our lustful obsessions, we're not repressing a legitimate drive. We're putting to death an aberration. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell, he goes on to say. Therefore, we deny it not in order to become sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to God which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage. Powerful words, to be sure. And so many in our world confuse sexual lust and love as if they were the same thing. The term commonly used is making love. Well, actually, that's not what's happening. You can't make love. Love is a decision. Love is a conscious desire that God gives us, an ability to treat a person in a certain way. An author and philosopher, Simon Blackburn, in his book entitled Lust, as part of his series on the seven deadly sins, captures it so well when he says this, a difference between lust and love. He says, love receives the world's applause. Lust is furtive, ashamed, embarrassed. Love pursues the good of the other with self-control, concern, reason, and patience. Lust pursues its own gratification, headlong, impatient of any control, and immune to reason. Love thrives on candlelight and conversation. Lust is equally happy in a doorway or a taxi, and its conversation is made up of animal grunts and cries. Lovers gaze into each other's eyes. Lust looks sideways, inventing deceits and stratagems and seductions, sizing up opportunities. Love grows with knowledge and time, courtship, truth, and trust. Lust is a trail of clothing in the hallway, the collision of two football packs. Love lasts, but lust cloys. This indeed is a hard and heavy teaching Jesus gives to us. But let me reassure you, the sin of adultery and every kind of sexual sin as, long as, as well as every other sin is forgivable. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, something's going to happen. Two things are going to happen. He is faithful and he is just. And he will forgive our sins. Give us a fresh start. Forget they ever happened. Give us mercy new every morning and forget it completely. But Equally importantly, it says, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. None of us can control any sinful urge without the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, including our sexual sinfulness when it occurs. 
And God offers us a cure for both. The forgiveness, a fresh start, and secondly, the cleansing of all the defilement of all kinds of sin, including the sin of adultery. But friends, as I say, it's a forgivable sin. It also then moves us to the place of turning away from it and taking actions to go in a righteous path. So what does gouging out our eye or cutting off our hand actually look like today? Well, I want to tell you something. If pornography is your stumbling block, then cut the cord. Get a strong internet filter if that's your problem or get off the internet completely. Get accountability software installed and monitoring on all your devices or a sexual purity app that if you go into something you shouldn't go into, it notifies somebody like your spouse or a trusted friend. Or just plain unplug your cable box at night. If that's your problem, watching stuff on your TV, take the cable out of the wall and put it under your spouse's pillow. Hard time doing it if it's there. Delete all the apps on all your devices that give you any kind of access to porn. That's what cutting it off means. Cancel and, or block all the movie channels, which may, during the daytime and early evening, have marvelously wonderful entertainment and you enjoy that. But then there's things on there later on that can get you caught up. Cancel them. You don't need them. Find a good therapist who can help you if you become addicted to these things and join a support group, possibly, for sexual addiction, addiction if you've gotten that much into it. To help resist these kind of temptations as a young person, 19 years old, and a new believer, I did three simple things. I made three six-inch segments. I went to one of the rose bushes in our family's yard and made three different pieces of thorns off a rose stem, just about that long. Put one in the vent in my car, put one on my dresser at home, one on my desk in my office in those days. Anytime my mind would begin to wander and go towards and be tempted to do something, I just picked that thing up and gave it a squeeze until I felt it, until it hurt. Because I knew that my sins were paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross. And Jesus had a crown of thorns pounded into his head because of my sins. And I didn't want one more ounce of pain going to him because of me sinning in that way. Secondly, I trained my mind to think of that woman that I might be tempted to look at in the wrong way as someone's daughter. Loved by a mom and a dad, sitting on her dad's lap as a young child, holding hands and walking with her mother. I saw the wider context of a real human being, not just an object. And thirdly, the Lord taught me to start praying for the person. Pray God's blessing and strength and encouragement and salvation and healing, beginning to pray blessing over the person, change the equation completely. My spirit person took over and my flesh was quelled. And it worked. But friends, if our adulterous thinking has turned into a relationship, a touching, where now it's gone beyond just thinking about it, you might be keeping it from your spouse, friends, but you're not keeping it from God. Drastic action is required break up the relationship today while you can you're playing with fire and sooner rather than later a lot of people are going to get burnt by your activity go to god as i said a moment ago confess your sin to him and say god forgive me help me to change and then go confess to your spouse do the unthinkable the batting average, the percentage of marriages that can recover from an adulterous affair are much higher when the offending spouse confesses before they're found out. You know why? Because trust has been breached 
And no apology will hold any weight if they've been found out by the other spouse. If you want your marriage healed and want to be right with your wife, your husband, go and confess to them. If after that your spouse is willing, go to counseling. Try to rebuild what wasn't right. There's fault on both sides in every marriage. Try to rebuild what God originally intended your marriage to be. I've got some suggestions. Because infidelity can happen to anyone. And I, here's some simple things that all couples can do to inject some preventive medicine to stay in the medical metaphor here today into your marriage. Four Ps I'm going to give you for prevention. Number one, be protective of your marriage. Avoid risky situations, going out after work for just one drink with a coworker. And many people don't plan to be unfaithful. It just sort of happens. Don't respond to texts or Facebook messages or whatever is your social media from old boyfriends or old girlfriends just trying to say hi. Don't even respond. Secondly, be positive. Look for what is right in your spouse and tell him or her every single day their positive qualities that you see. People who have love affairs are often looking for appreciation and affirmation. If you use your words daily to build each other up, you're filling that necessary and much-needed encouragement. Thirdly, be polite. The third P, be polite. Always talk to your spouse with respect. Be careful what you say to each other and how you say it. Show courtesy and caring in the way you treat each other. Speak the truth, but always do so lovingly. And fourthly, be playful. Have some fun. Have some humor. Bring sex back into your relationship where it belongs if it's not been there. Schedule a time to play with each other and have a date night regularly at least once a week. Marriages can and sometimes do survive affairs and many become stronger because they weathered such a crisis. This is one of those hard sayings Jesus has given to us. It's one of those things that's needed to be heard so much by our culture today. Our children, our grandchildren, and even for some, our great-grandchildren are growing up in a world that is so different than the one that I grew up in, especially in this area. All the bounds have been thrown off. Everything's okay. But Jesus is inviting us into a different kind of life, a life of holiness with him, a life of fulfillment within the guardrails of what he's ordained for our life to be. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the truth in your word that you gave to us to set us free. Lord, we ask you by your Holy Spirit's grace that you'll help us, each and every one of us, to walk ever closer with you, to be pure both in our words and in our thoughts and in our actions, and to live each day to bring glory and honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.